Good morning, everyone. I'm Clark Irvin. I want to maximize the time we have with our speaker. Um, as you know, I'm a member of the Speaker Series Committee and uh, delighted to be with you here this morning. So as we all know, over the course of recent years, uh, a number of America's most elite colleges and universities have, I think quite commendably, uh, grappled with the legacy of slavery and the degree to which slavery played a role in their founding and their development over the years. And at the forefront of that movement has been Georgetown University here in Washington, D.C. And a principal player in that effort is our speaker today, Adam Rothman. Professor Rothman is a professor in the history department at Georgetown University. He studies the history of the United States from the Revolution to the Civil War. Uh, he's written a number of books, and the most recent one is particularly intriguing to me. I commend it to you. I look forward to reading it myself. It's called Beyond Freedom's Reach, A Kidnapping in the Twilight of Slavery. It's the story of three slave children who were taken from New Orleans to Cuba by their owner during the Civil War, and then the efforts of their mother to recover them from there. Uh, focusing on the topic today, slavery and the, con uh, the slavery project, uh, the legacy of slavery, uh, the professor served on Georgetown's working group on slavery, memory, and reconciliation in 2015 and 2016, and he is now the principal curator of the Georgetown Slavery Archive. He is a graduate of Yale University and of Columbia University. And with that, please join me in welcoming Civil War expert, Professor Adam Ruff. Well, thank you so much uh, for for the invitation to speak to you today. It's really a thrill for me as a historian of the United States to have an opportunity to speak about history at such a historic location. We don't often get a chance to, uh, to do that sort of thing, so it's absolutely a thrill for me. Uh, I want to start by wishing um, uh, a couple a very uh, happy um, 183rd wedding anniversary, uh, 183rd wedding anniversary. Uh, on, on this day in 1836, Charles Taylor and Mary Ann Borman were married at Holy Trinity Church in Georgetown, right outside the gates of Georgetown College. And uh, I just want to read to you, if you don't mind, the, um, the record of their marriage in Holy Trinity's marriage register. So this is what it says. It says, um, September 22nd, Charles Taylor, colored, a slave to Georgetown College, and Mary Ann Borman, colored, daughter of Nathaniel Borman and Matilda Grave, both colored, and free, were joined in the holy bonds of matrimony in the presence of Henry Johnson, Benjamin Johnson, Stephen Shorter, William Duncanson, and others by James Lucas. So Charles Taylor was an enslaved man who worked at Georgetown, the place where I teach the history of slavery today. Uh, he was actually for the period of about 10 years actually owned by Georgetown College. 
He was ultimately manumitted, that is to say freed, in the early 1850s and continued to work for the college for wages after that. Uh, we have records of his marriage, of the baptisms of his children, of the wages he was paid by Georgetown College, and his death in 1862 and burial in the Holy Trinity Cemetery. So Charles Taylor was a slave to Georgetown and a slave at Georgetown. And um, just as, the, as a historian of slavery at Georgetown today, I, I feel like it's part of my mission in life to recognize people like Charles Taylor who worked and lived and died at the college uh, in the condition of bondage. I've been teaching at Georgetown for almost 20 years now. And for most of that time, I've actually been teaching about the history of slavery at Georgetown, aspects of it. For a long time, I didn't get too deeply into it, um, but I would, I would talk about it from time to time. But then, about three years ago, everything changed at Georgetown. Um, I had an opportunity to serve on the Working Group for Slavery, Memory, and Reconciliation at Georgetown in the 2015-2016 academic year. That working group was launched by President Jack DeJoya uh, to give the university community an opportunity to reflect on, to think about its own history of slavery. President DeJoya launched that working group for a couple of reasons. The first, very specific to Georgetown, was that the university had just renovated uh, a building on campus that was called Milady Hall. And it turned out that Reverend Thomas Milady, who had been the president of Georgetown in the 1830s and 1840s and the provincial of the Jesuits of the Maryland province, was actually the architect of the mass sale of virtually the entire community of people owned by the Maryland Jesuits in 1838, roughly 300 people. And so President DeJoy, who was familiar with his history, thought that the reopening of Milady Hall would be an opportunity for the university to, to, to think about how we remember that history and how we recognize the history of slavery as it, that was, as it was connected to our own campus. But at the same time, it wasn't just a local story. President DeJoy launched that working group in the context of um, a much broader conversation and tumult around the country around um, the rise of new and violent forms of white supremacy, uh, protests around the shooting of Michael Brown in, in Ferguson, uh, the massacre at the AME Church in uh, Charleston. All of these had really, um, I think, pricked the conscience of um, the Georgetown community and President DeJoy, and he thought this was an opportune moment to reflect on our history. So I joined a um, a working group of uh, 15 other students, faculty, staff, and alumni of the university. And we spent an entire academic year digging into our institution's history and trying to come up with a series of recommendations to our community about how we should uh, try to reconcile um, this history at Georgetown. And I'll talk more about some of the recommendations we came up with and what's happened since in a few minutes. But uh, I, I want to start with the history, because I am a historian. 
And I think it's really important. And what's interesting about the history of Georgetown, the Jesuits, and slavery is that it was not a secret. It was not hidden away. There was no conspiracy to cover it up. Jesuit historians had actually been writing about Georgetown, the Jesuits, and slavery for 100 years. Um, did anybody here go to Georgetown? No? Not that kind of crowd, I guess. <laughs> you never know. There now. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I, hope he's, I hope I see him in my history class. Um, I taught there. You taught there? You taught a course on slavery? Roman slavery. Roman slavery, okay. <laughs> Great. Um, when did you teach there? It was a long time. I mean, it was just part time. Was there a, did, did you know about the history of Georgetown, Georgetown's no, own history of slavery? No. I would have brought it into the conversation. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so that, you know, that's interesting in that, um, and so if you read, for instance, my predecessor at Georgetown, Emmett Curran, uh, a very fine historian, he actually wrote, he literally wrote uh, the book on Georgetown's history, a multi-volume history of Georgetown. Uh, the first volume was published in 1993, The Bicentennial History of the University. If you read that book, which I, I fear very few people have actually done, uh, he writes about the history of slavery and its connection to the college. He writes about uh, enslaved people who worked at the college. He writes about the enslaved people who worked on the Jesuit plantations that were supposed to subsidize the education of uh, white students at the college. So it's not, it was not a secret. And, and in fact, the American Studies program at Georgetown in the 1990s had actually launched a whole project around Georgetown, the Jesuits, and slavery. They even created a pioneering website called the Jesuit Plantation Project, which published some of the key documents about the sale of 1838 and other documents in our archives about the history of slavery. But despite all of that, when the working group was launched in 2015, very few people at the university knew anything about this history. Very few people, even the faculty, even history faculty, didn't know much about this history. And I felt like that was a real failing of my own profession, of uh, my, me and my fellow scholars, who knew this history to some extent, but had not done a very good job communicating it to the people who really needed to know about it the university community, and the broader public. So one of the things that we did as part of the working group was we created a new website called the Georgetown Slavery Archive, slaveryarchive.georgetown.edu, to publish some of the key archival information that we had in our own archives and other archives around the country connected to Georgetown, the Jesuits, and slavery. So that's an ongoing project. I'm the curator of that project to this day. We have nearly 400 items on our website, including uh, the marriage record of Charles Taylor. So that's one of, uh, one of the things we've done coming out of that effort. It's just to, 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 to dedicate ourselves to telling the story of our history uh, in innovative ways to as many different audiences as possible. So that's one reason why I'm so happy to be here today talking about this with you. This really is an, an extension of the work that I've been doing for the last three years. So about that history, um, let me try to make a, a very long story relatively short. It's uh, a story that spans 150 years. And even though it is really a story of uh, the Maryland Jesuits, the Catholic community in Maryland and slavery, I think it has lessons for American history much more broadly and even institutions like uh, St. John's. 
Because um, I, I feel like the story of the Maryland Jesuits, Georgetown, and slavery is really a microcosm of the entire history and afterlife of American slavery. And sometimes that history is just too big to wrap our heads around. It, it can be very abstract. It can feel very remote. Um, but for me, one thing that studying the history of the history of Georgia and the Jesuits and slavery has done is it has brought that history home to the place where I live and work and uh, where my students um, are learning. So I think it's, there's a kind of urgency and immediacy to that history that is helpful. So the first Jesuits arrive in Maryland in 1634 in the Ark and the Dove with the first Catholic settlers who found the colony of Maryland. The Jesuits had to be self-supporting, and so wherever they went around the world, they generally got involved in the local economy, uh, whatever, um, whatever they could find to, to raise some money to support their educational and religious mission. So in Maryland, what do you think that economy was? Tobacco. Tobacco, right. So the Jesuits become tobacco planters. They become large landowners across the colony of Maryland. Um, for the first 50 years, like most other Chesapeake planters, the Jesuits generally rely on tenant farmers and indentured servants to grow their tobacco. Tenant farmers and indentured servants who largely came from the British Isles. But sometime between 1680 and 1720, the Jesuits make a transition, like other Chesapeake planters do, from servitude to African chattel slavery. The first records we have in the Maryland Province Archives, which are at Georgetown, the, the records of the Maryland Jesuits, the first records of slave owning date to the 1710s. Um, bills of sale and account books that record the names of um, enslaved people who worked on the Jesuit plantations. There were several of them across the colony of Maryland. By the middle of the 18th century, the Maryland Jesuits, the Society of Jesus in Maryland, had become one of the largest landowners and slave owners in the entire colony, uh, owning uh, at least six different um, plantation sites and more than 200 enslaved people. Uh, the Jesuits were closely tied to the Catholic elite of Maryland, which also um, derived its wealth from slave labor on tobacco plantations. And it was this, this elite interlocking with the Jesuits that founded Georgetown College in 1789. And the original idea for Georgetown was that the profits generated by the Jesuit plantations in Maryland would help to subsidize the education of white students at Georgetown. That was the model. It's very explicit uh, in, the, in the minutes, for instance, of the corporation of Roman Catholic clergymen that set up Georgetown uh, in conjunction with the first bishop of the United States, uh, John Carroll. So that was the idea, uh, that these plantations would support Georgetown. But Georgetown College itself was also a site of slave labor. Enslaved people worked at the college uh, in the financial records of the college, uh, where every student kept an account, you can see, it's really quite striking, uh, you can see students bringing their enslaved people to campus, hiring their slaves out to the college to pay their fees. Um, you, we have records of um, the college hiring uh, the slaves of neighboring slave owners to do work on campus and paying not the slaves but their owners for their labor 
Um, these, are the, these are the kinds of records that we find um, Charles Taylor in, among other things. Uh, we know that you know, in the 1810s, uh, when there were about 120 to 140 people on campus, uh, including priests and students, there were also somewhere between 10 and 20 enslaved people on campus. So they were not a small presence. They were a major presence on campus, and they did all of the little things that made the college work. Um, so when we talk about the history of Georgetown, the Jesuits, and slavery, we're talking about both the college and the relationship between the college and the plantations. But by the 1810s, the model uh, was breaking down because, as it turns out, the plantations just weren't generating uh, much money. And so for 20 years, the Jesuits have a, a running debate about what to do about slavery on these plantations. Um, there are some Jesuits who took their obligations of religious stewardship very carefully and thought they should hold on to the slaves and continue to care for their spiritual lives. Uh, and let me say one thing about that. Um, we find the records of the lives of enslaved people not just in financial documents, not just in ledgers and bills of sale, but in sacramental records, the records of baptisms and marriages and burials that demonstrate that the Jesuits had brought enslaved people and free people of color into the spiritual life of their communities, into the spiritual life of their communities. And some of the, some of the Jesuits took those obligations seriously. There were some Jesuits who argued that because slavery was unprofitable, and increasingly scandalous, not, not necessarily wrong, but scandalous with the rise of abolitionism, the Jesuits should make a slow, trans, a gradual transition from slavery to some form of free labor, whether it was tenant farming or wage work. So there are actually proposals that the Jesuits discuss about whether to gradually emancipate their slaves and convert them to some other kind of status. There's even a letter in the archives where one person recommends that the Jesuits free their slaves and send them to Liberia, this haven for free African Americans in West Africa. But the position that, act that ultimately wins out is the position that Thomas Milady took. And that's the position that the, the best solution was for the Jesuits to sell off their people and to take the profits from that and reinvest it in other kinds of activities, whether it was the building of urban schools or the cultivation of um, churches and other kinds of religious activities. So that's what they do. And in 1838, the Maryland Jesuits sold at least 272 people to two planters in Louisiana, Henry Johnson and Jesse Beatty. They send, they send them south. Um, a, a handful of the Jesuit slaves remain behind in Maryland um, a few run away and escape sail that way. Um, but it's uh, clearly a very traumatic moment for the Maryland Jesuit slave community and really a pivotal moment in the history that we were studying. That sale did not end the relationship of Georgetown and the Jesuits to slavery. We continue to find the records, the names of enslaved people, both in the college archives and on the Jesuit plantations, all the way up to emancipation. The very last enslaved person who worked at Georgetown College was a man named Aaron Edmondson. His name appears in the college ledgers right up until March of 1862. 
Who knows what happened in April 1862 here in Washington? Mm -hmm. Emancipation, right, mm -hmm. emancipation. So right until the abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C., there were enslaved people working uh, in bondage at Georgetown. One note about emancipation in D.C. Uh, emancipation in D.C. came with compensation, not to the slaves, but to their owners. Right? Every owner of an emancipated person in Washington was compensated for the value of their labor. Um, and in fact, we know that the founders of the Georgetown Medical School were slave owners, and we found their claims for compensation in, uh, in the National Archives. Um, so owners were compensated, not the slaves themselves. So that, in brief, is uh, the history of the relationship between Georgetown, the Jesuits, and slavery. Um, it's a deep history, it's a long history, it's a history that is really, as I said, a microcosm of the broader history of slavery uh, here in the United States. So uh, as a member of the working group, we tried to figure out, well, what, what should be Georgetown's response to this history? What do we have to do today to recognize this history and its impact on, on our identity today? And you could argue, well, it's a long time ago, and maybe we should just forget about it all, but, but places like Georgetown and St. John's are really steeped in history. We celebrate aspects of our history every day. We celebrate here the, the presidents who, who, uh, who worship here at Georgetown. Every, every year we read our, our charter from 1815. We have the names of buildings and halls named after important people in the history of Georgetown. So our entire campus is a landscape of historical memory, but it's like a funhouse mirror where only, only parts of that history are actually represented. It's a distorted view of history. So as a historian, I think we should tell the full story, and that includes the history of slavery. So a couple of things happened during our academic year. Uh, on that working group that really changed the tenor of the whole conversation. The first thing that happened is in the fall of, of 2015, students started to protest. There was a sit-in in the president's office around a whole variety of issues connected to racism on campus, and one of the students' demands was that the name of Mullady Hall and another hall on campus, McSherry Hall, be changed, because they did not want to live anymore in the shadow of the names of these uh, Jesuit priests who had orchestrated the mass sale of people. They just, they found that to be an affront to their values. Um, we were thinking about this issue already, but, but some, there's something about students sleeping in the president's office that accelerates the process <laughs> of deliberation. Uh, so pretty much the next day, uh, we recommended uh, that uh, the names be changed. And so we came up with a temporary solution. Um, we, that the names be changed to Freedom and Remembrance Halls until we could come up with a better name. And here's something, you know, I think that critics of renaming uh, have an important point when they argue that we should not be erasing history. I totally agree. We should not be erasing history. Um, so if we just took those names off the buildings and called them no-name building or named them after some innocuous uh, contemporary donor, we would in fact be erasing history. So what, what names could we use? What names could we substitute for those old names that did not erase history? 
So by the end of the year, we came up with two names. One was Isaac Hawkins Hall. Right? We recommended Isaac Hall. Um, Isaac, Hawkins, Isaac Hawkins is the first person listed in the Articles of Agreement between Thomas Mullody, the head of the Jesuits, and the two Louisiana planters. So there's a, there's a contract between them that lists every single person that the Jesuits are going to sell. And Isaac was at the very top. So we felt that he represented that history, the history of the enslaved people, uh, very well. And that by changing the name of that building from Mullody Hall to Isaac, or Isaac Hawkins Hall, we would not be erasing history at all, but we would be reminding people of a very important aspect of our history. The other building was named um, Anne Marie Beecraft Hall, after a very uh, pioneering free African-American woman of color who became a nun and started the very first school for black girls just outside the gates of Georgetown in the 1820s. So with Isaac Hawkins and Anne Marie Beecraft, we felt like the, that captured many different facets of the relationship between Georgetown and slavery and as well the African-American community uh, of the 19th century that was connected to Georgetown. So one thing that happened was that the students demonstrated that they were deeply involved and engaged with this question of how we deal with history. The second thing that happened was that an alumnus of the university named Richard Cellini decided that he would go looking for the descendants of the people who were sold in 1838. So he hired genealogists and lo and behold was able to trace living descendants of the people uh, who were sold. Um, so it's one thing to just read about a bill of sale or to read about people's names in an archival document. And it's another thing to, be, to come face to face with the great, great grandchildren of the people who were sold. Um, right now, there's a, the descendant community that has emerged um, is several thousand strong. They have a lot of opinions about what Georgetown and the Jesuits should do to reconcile, uh, to repair um, the, uh, the damage, the harm that was done to their families. Um, and that has just added a whole other layer of um, both emotional power and, um, and I would say um, political dilemmas to the task of thinking through the problem of history. So currently, um, well, let me say this very bluntly. Uh, it, one thing that it did was it raised the issue of reparations in a very tangible way. So some members of the descendant community, as well as advocates around Georgetown, argued that if you really wanted to reconcile this history of slavery, some kind of material reparation has to be made to the living descendants of the people who were sold in 1838. So right now, Georgetown, the Jesuit, leadership of Georgetown, the Jesuits, and the descendant community are having these conversations about how to create a framework where um, something like that might be able to go forward. Students, again, students are very impatient. I found that. They don't like to wait for things. Um, so as all these things are going on, the students at Georgetown last semester actually uh, voted to institute a student fee of $27.20 um, a semester uh, that would contribute to a reconciliation fund that would go to programs to benefit members of the descendant community. This was hotly debated on campus. 
Um, I attended one of the town halls the students had about it with opponents and proponents of this fee. I was so deeply impressed by the way that they were drawing from this history on both sides to, to make their arguments. It was really very inspiring. And in the end, um, in a vote that featured the largest turnout of students at any vote in the history of Georgetown, the students voted um, about two-thirds to support the reconciliation fee. So they demonstrated their commitment to material reparations. Now, that just because they voted for it doesn't make it policy. It has to go through um, Georgetown's Board of Trustees, uh, which is where it is now. But um, it's just another example of the way the university community, different elements of it, have been wrestling with this history in very creative ways. Um, I would just, um, by way of a conclusion, argue that I think there's something pretty distinctive about the way Georgetown has um, uh, gone about thinking through this history. And I think it's because Georgetown ultimately has a religious identity, has a Catholic and Jesuit identity to this very day. And to a great extent, the, the conversation around the university, around this history of slavery, was um, articulated in a Catholic and Jesuit idiom. Uh, so for example, one of the things that we recommended as a working group and actually was, was uh, uh, enacted two years ago, April 2017, was that the university, as well as the Jesuits, actually we couldn't speak for the Jesuits, the university should apologize. It just apologize. Um, Acknowledge, this, acknowledge the sin that it participated in and apologize. And it did that in April of 2017 in um, a religious ceremony, a liturgy of contrition, hope, and remembrance. Both the president of Georgetown, Jack DeJoya, and the head of the North American Jesuits, Tim Kaseki, issued uh, formal apologies for their participation in the history of slavery. The ceremony included members of the descendant community who offered their own reflections, their own readings. So it was, in fact, I think, a really wonderful, although insufficient, moment of reconciliation. Um, the whole ceremony is available on YouTube. You can watch it. You can watch the apology. You can watch the responses by descendants. I, found, I, was, there, I was there in person, and I found it to be incredibly powerful. Um, but I think the fact that it was rooted in religious ceremony was really quite meaningful. I don't think you've seen the same kind of moral response from other universities and institutions that don't have, don't have, that, don't have that religious foundation. And it's not just schools. I think churches, synagogues, and mosques are another place where conversations around reconciliation and repair can take place. So for example, um, Close, uh, close to home, I think, the uh, Virginia Theological Seminary, an Episcopal Seminary, just a couple of weeks ago announced that it was establishing a reparations fund um, to support um, different uh, programs and scholarships uh, for members of the African-American community, specifically in response to VTS's own history of slavery. Its history is, is quite similar to that of Georgetown. Um, I was dig doing a little digging about, about St. John's before, before I came here, and um, you may all know this, of course, but um, the sacramental registers of St. John's have, um, have um, uh, records of the baptism and marriages of slaves and free people of color here. The second rector, William Hawley, uh, performed these kinds of rites uh, for African Americans at this church. 
And also, um, this church played a leading role in the establishment of an African-American Episcopal church in 1865, just after emancipation uh, um, and heading into Reconstruction. So I think places like Georgetown, places like St. John's, these are places where we can have really thoughtful conversations about the meaning of history in our lives today. And we can have those conversations in a moral and religious framework that really helps to give them meaning. So I hope what we've done at Georgetown might, um, might inspire you. I hope um, you might, it might just inspire you to think about the ways that slavery touches um, your lives and the lives of um, this particular community. Um, so I, I just thank you for your attention and I'm happy to answer questions. Questions, Layla? about selling the slaves. Mm -hmm. It was past the time that England had outlawed slavery. So to what extent were the Jesuits here connected with people in Europe who had differing um, political or economic views about slavery, and did that have any influence on their decision here? Yeah, interesting question. Um, so the, so the British abolished slavery in, in, uh, their, uh, in the Caribbean in 1833 in a process that lasts about five years. So it really does overlap with the conversations the Jesuits were having about their own um, enslaved community. Uh, I think the Jesuits, so uh, two things. First of all, first there seems to have been a kind of split within the Jesuit the Maryland Jesuits, between the foreign-born Jesuits from Europe and the American-born Jesuits. To a certain extent, the American-born Jesuits were much more blasé about slavery than the foreign-born Jesuits. The foreign-born Jesuits thought it was very uncomfortable um, to be slave owners. And they were, they were more, um, more insistent on one way or another getting out of the business of slavery, whether it was emancipating the slaves or selling them, one way or the other. Um, so that's one way that that international um, dimension comes in. The other way is that, although I've, I've not seen any, any explicit acknowledgement or recognition of British abolitionism, the Jesuits in Maryland are keenly aware of the rise of anti-slavery sentiment, more here in the United States than in Europe. Uh, so for instance, um, there's a Jesuit priest named uh, Ryder, Father Ryder, who actually became president of Georgetown in the 1840s. In 1835, he gives a public address that is deeply um, anti-abolitionist. He argues the abolitionists are fanatics, atheists, and are threatening to disrupt the union. It's not exactly a pro-slavery speech, but it's an anti-abolitionist speech. And I think that sentiment was very, um, uh, very deeply rooted in the Jesuit and Catholic community. And the other, thing, the other thing you see in the debates among the Jesuits about their slaves is they are worried that if they don't do something about their slaves now, the abolitionists are going to do something about it later. So they, there's a sense of urgency that they need to either sell. For those who argue for selling the slaves, they argue that they need to do it 
But the judges need to do it now before that property is confiscated. Art? I'm impressed by your student vote. That they voted not just that it should be done, but they voted to use their own money or their parents' money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm struck by implication the trustees, the university, had not yet decided what to do. And, and I was also struck your comment they have to approve the student referendum before it takes effect. If you were to paraphrase, this may be a little uncomfortable, the arguments against doing anything because you've been sitting in some of these debates, what would you say those who, who are speaking against this process of acceptance of responsibility and potentially of reparations, what are they saying uh, to oppose that effort? Yeah, it's interesting. I've not actually heard anybody sort of actively oppose um, um, the idea of reparations around Georgetown. The people who are opposed to the, the, the student vote, there are a number of ways, um, well, the student debate itself was interesting. So the students who are opposed to this reconciliation fund generally argued that there was a moral obligation to do something to repair and reconcile this history, but it wasn't the student's obligation. It was the university's. And uh, it should be on the university to, to do whatever had to be done, not the students. So that was one argument. There was a really interesting argument um, about whether or not students who are on financial aid, low-income students, and African-American students should have to pay reparations, whether they should be, whether you know, they had to. Uh, some, some of the black students said, well, we should get reparations. Why are we paying reparations? Uh, but actually, in the end, I think most of the black students on campus um, ended up rallying to the support of the Reconciliation Fund because they, I think they thought it would establish a broader principle that was important. So there are really interesting debates among the students. Um, as far as the, I, I haven't talked to any trustees about it, and I have not really seen any public conversation among the trustees. Um, I would say that um, there's a, at Georgetown now, so the, the administration is in these ongoing conversations, negotiations, whatever you want to call them, with members of the descendant community. And I think it doesn't want to do anything before those conversations have reached some kind of resolution. Because otherwise, um, members of the descendant community could say, well, we did not get to vote on this reconciliation fund. Um, this, the students did this without consulting us. Um, it's, it's not really the what, it's not what, it's not how we would propose a reconciliation fund or a reparations fee. So um, I think the universe, so one argument against just instituting this reconciliation fund would be that whatever is done has to be done in some kind of collaboration with the descendant community. And this wasn't done that way. Not entirely. Although I must say, there, were, there are students at Georgetown today who are members of the descendant community. They were active in the debates and advocacy for the Reconciliation Fund. Descendants did weigh in in various ways on it. So there, is, so I'd say there maybe not was a formal participation of members of the descendant community in the vote for this fund. They were involved. They could comment. Is, is there any significance that the students came up with $26 and change? Is there any significance to the number? Did they pull it out of the air, or where did that come from? Uh, the number has meaning. So the, um, the number of slaves in the original Articles of Agreement is 272. So 
in the initial protests that the students uh, engaged in, in in the fall of 2015, as part of their social media cam campaign, they came up with a hashtag, hashtag GU272. And that signified the slave community that was sold in 1838. Um, and that number, 272, has really become a kind of symbol of the Georgetown and Jesuit slave community. So the fee that they recommended, $27.20, is an allusion to that number. It also happens to be, I think, $27,000 for reparation. Uh, well, it's 0.1% of the annual or the semesterly tuition at Georgetown, which happens to be something like $27,200. So they just took a percentage of that. So it is a meaningful, symbolically meaningful number. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. I'm wondering have the descendants of alumni who went to Georgetown in, say, 1880s or 
his ancestry was only kind of rediscovered by scholars in the 1950s. And then by the 1960s, Dorchen was celebrating him as the first African-American president of a major white university, uh, which is a little bit uh, shady, right? Yeah. Uh, so now there's a somewhat more complicated story we tell about Healy. But we know that, that Healy basically distanced himself from other black people. He, you know, he... In fact, actually, Mullody, I believe, um, was the executor of, of um, Healy's father's will, and that, which included um, slaves. And uh, I believe they actually sold the family slaves. So that tells you something about Healy's own attitude. One last question, if it's quick, Mark. I might have missed something, but have the students indicated what the fund should fund? What, what, how do they want that money used? Yeah, actually, this is also one of the one of the criticisms um, that was uh, levied against the against the proposal. They don't really know. Um, there is no specific recommendation for how this reconciliation fund would be spent. Uh, there was a, a number of different idea, you know, possibilities that were floated, scholarships. Um, I, somebody suggested eye exams for. Um, for children. Um, but I think, so one of the things that's interesting here is that, so the GU-272 were sold to Louisiana. A number of them, a good portion of them, were sold to a man named Jesse Beatty, who had a plantation, a cotton plant, sugar plantation, in Arborville Parish, Louisiana. It was called West Oak, his plantation. Um, there is a town today, on, basically on the site of West Oak, called Maringuin, a little town of about 1,100 people, about 80% of whom are actually descendants of the people who were sold to Beatty. So one idea is that this reconciliation fund, this is a, it's, I've been there several times. It's a, it's a remarkable little town on a bayou. You know, Maringuin means mosquito. And yes, there are lots of mosquitoes. But one idea is that the, uh, one focus of efforts at reconciliation and repair should be Maringuin. So this is... This is a place of a sort of dense concentration of the descendants of the people who were sold. Uh, they were sold to the Deep South. They were literally sold down the river. Um, it's the worst place to have been sold. It was a pretty bad place to be sold, but they made a life there. And what's really remarkable is how many of them are still Catholic, how many of them are people of abiding faith, how strong that community is. Um, uh, so uh, one idea for reconciliation is just building a relationship uh, between Georgetown and that community. Everyone, please join me in thanking